Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Well, we've all been uh, reading the headlines, hearing the reports here on NPR um, and uh, various places. The New York Times reports Russian troops are encircling Ukraine from three sides. In Washington and Brussels, there are warnings of crushing sanctions if Vladimir Putin orders an invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Embassy families, both American and uh, Russian, are being evacuated from Kyiv. And uh, according to the Salt Lake Tribune, amid uncertainty in Ukraine, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is temporarily reassigning its full-time missionaries to locations outside the country. We talk about all of this uh, today with uh, Anna Pechenkina, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Utah State University. Her research concerns international and civil conflict and conflict resolution. So, Professor Pechenkina, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Uh, so not only your research is well-placed to talk about this, you're, you yourself are well-placed to talk about this. Uh, you, you're ethnic Russian but grew up in eastern Ukraine. That's true, indeed. Um, I did not pick my area of, cons- of uh, research focus when uh, I was um, a kind of big— um, the, the conflict in eastern Ukraine started much later, after I have already chosen uh, my area of concentration. Uh, but uh, indeed, it was um, uh, quite a, uh, um, a surreal experience to start uh, um, illustrating the statistical patterns and uh, the conclusions from data analysis that I've drawn from analyzing other conflicts throughout the world to the place where I was born and raised. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Uh, Are you in touch with people back in Ukraine? I am, yes. Uh, I still have family there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to start there. What, uh, What are folks in Ukraine saying? Of course, we know what loud Western voices are saying, especially politicians, right? Uh, We know what Putin is saying. Um, Let's start with what are folks in Ukraine uh, saying and how worried are they? Yeah, I I don't want to say that I can speak for the entire Ukrainian nation, but anecdotally. So this is kind of my circle, my family and friends. uh, I think there are uh, uh, two directions of thought. On the one hand, what we're observing right now is not as unprecedented as one may think by following the news. If um, kind of when I um, remember the 2014 events, I think my constant frustration was the lack of focus on Ukraine. I think the Crimea was a big event, but then the war in the Donbas region was the bloodiest war in on the European continent since Bosnia. And as uh, someone who comes from that region, I remember that I felt like it was not sufficiently covered. So in a way, to me, uh, today's troop movements in Ukraine, in, in, inside of Russia, um, uh, kind of the attention that, that is being paid, uh, th- that, um, uh, that feels like a new level of concern. So for the folks back in Ukraine, when they see the troop movements, uh, they basically say, "Well, we've lived through this before. Russia has uh, Russia did move just the same amount of troops uh, last spring. Uh, so, on the one hand, they say that we've seen this movie before. We are kind of mentally prepared for everything, but life has to go on. Mm. Um, on the other hand, uh, the um, um, the individuals who actually had to flee the Donbas region." Uh, they are anecdotally, again, 
cannot speak for everyone, but anecdotally, they seem to be the ones who have uh, very um, kind of um, specific contingency plans. So in other words, they know that a real war may break out and uh, they are prepared. Mm-hmm. They are prepared to flee. I mean. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, yeah. Remind me what what happened at the conclusion of the events of 2014. I, I think we're you know again we're at short attention span with us in the West. You know we're, we're pretty riveted when the conflict was going on, or at least the beginnings of the conflict. Uh, I don't know that I could tell you what happened at the end of that. Yeah, uh, and I think for a good reason because th- this is what we call in political science a frozen conflict. So this is a low intensity. Uh, mm, Technically, this would be an internationalized insurgency. So uh, the situation as of today is that um, uh, the DNR and LNR are so-called republics. These are unrecognized de facto um, governments of of these uh, small territories. These are the southern regions of the Donetsk and Luhansk uh, provinces of Ukraine. And uh, these... um, um, these two non-state actors, uh, they, um, the, the, the Ukrainian government does not have any control over that territory. So de facto, these are self-governed non-state actors not recognized by anyone except for, uh, well, actually, even Russia does not recognize them. So yes, not recognized by any other state in the world as uh, independent from Ukraine. And um, because there are constant violations, almost daily violations of the ceasefire line, such that uh, the Ukraine army has a concentration of troops on this on this uh, line of separation, and the DNR and LNR troops are also concentrated along this uh, the line of separation. So almost every day uh, there are violations of ceasefire, and on average we see about 100 uh, battlefield fatalities per year. So that's what I mean when I say that this is not a high-intensity conflict, as you saw in 2014 and 2015, when um, uh, immediately about uh, 5,000 battlefield fatalities were generated, which is extreme high-intensity conflict. Uh, and then uh, about um, the same amount of civilian fatalities, right? Uh, but right now, this is a low-intensity, what we call frozen conflict, such that uh, the Minsk agreements, which were supposed to settle it, they def- they're basically cannot be implemented. Uh, and for the U- not a single Ukrainian government could implement the Minsk agreements the way they're written out and be reelected in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we're at this frozen stage. Uh, so this is, as you described, a frozen war, but a continuing war, you know, to conflict nonetheless. There's kind of a through line here, to, right, to, to now. Um, what um, the, the, the pretext, at least what Putin's talking about, is protecting ethnic Russians uh, in Ukraine. Is that at least that's one of the things he's talking about, right? Yeah, he is very concerned about protecting ethnic Russians in Ukraine. Uh, in fact, uh, if you uh, trace Putin's statements on the subject, you can trace his evolution, the evolution of his thinking, uh, that uh, when he just came to power in 1999, um, he was much more willing to talk about Ukraine as a kind of as a sovereign uh, state, uh, but um, kind of as a friendly neighbor. 
but uh, the evolution has been such that uh, um, his uh, historical essays have been really emphasizing the, you know, the common roots and the quote unquote Ukrainian nation as the little brother, right, uh, to Russia, and then. Um, if you live inside Russia and you only follow the Russian propaganda, you would be left with the impression that everyday Russian speakers in Ukraine are discriminated against and are oppressed. And as someone who grew up in Ukraine as a Russian speaker, as an ethnic Russian, I can assure you that uh, that is not the case. Are there, have there been some instances where the Ukrainian nationalists perhaps um, um, you know, like made statements on, in the parliament uh, that that went too far, of course. But every country has those extremist uh, factions, and Ukraine is uh, n- not an exception here. Uh, so, in in general, the rights of Russian speakers are, are not uh, the Russian speakers are not oppressed in Ukraine, and uh, th- uh, this is um, this is just one of the ways in which he can mobilize support for this type of foreign policy. Uh, I, w- I would say that he's using this in a purely instrumental way, and he's um, kind of we- the demands that Russia is making today is to basically have the veto over the foreign policy of Ukraine and Moldova and Georgia as well, and uh, that's that's truly the 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 way that Putin is conceptualizing the security of Russia, but the concerns for ethnic Russians. It's, it's unclear to me whether that's instrumental or genuine. Mm-hmm. So what, uh, as far as we can tell, what, what are Putin's concerns? And you, I guess you mentioned a, a couple of things. These, these are countries on his doorstep, right, uh, right next to um, Russia. Is he concerned about encroachment from NATO? Is he concerned about democracy right next door? What, what are he concerned Yes, I think these things are clearly intertwined in his mind. So, um, um, if again, let's let's look at the evolution of Vladimir Putin through the years. So, in 1999, when he came to power, uh, he gave an um, early interview to the BBC where he mentioned that uh, it um, he could consider he could envision the world where Russia would join NATO. So that was the early version of Putin, where he uh, did not necessarily see the West as purely uh, an antagonist to Russia, as purely a threat to Russia. Then everything changes, or at least this is the, the common interpretation, that the 2004 events in Ukraine, so this is 10 years before the annexation of Crimea, the 2004 events, which are uh, often described as the quote-unquote Orange Revolution, where uh, the uh, pro-Russia-friendly uh, political candidate was uh, um, uh, kind of orchestrated the um, uh, fraudulent election and popular protests uh, demanded a fair election. And there was uh, uh, a- a- another um, another uh, election held and the pro-Western candidate was elected. And so that to Putin seems to appear as uh, clear evidence in, uh, that Ukraine is not an independent state where people have the freedom of assembly and can, and can uh, demand um, 
accountability from its government. But instead, he interprets these events as Ukraine being the marionette of the West. In other words, uh, if, if you follow his statements, he uh, likes to throw out phrases like, uh, these protests are sponsored by the West or orchestrated by the West. I think he truly cannot conceive of citizens uh, overcoming the collective action problem and protesting a fraudulent election. He truly does not think that can happen without the sponsorship of the United States. And so uh, after 2004, everything changes and the rhetoric, the rhetoric that we see coming out of the Kremlin um, becomes much more hostile. Uh, this is when uh, Putin starts bringing up the 1997 uh, treason. Uh, that's the the common uh, word that is being used. What he means is that uh, Yeltsin was, um, um, uh, during the Clinton presidency, uh, initially uh, Clint, uh, Clinton's um, Secretary of State uh, promised, uh, well, I, people, uh, historians are disputing whether that was a promise or, or kind of a... Uh, a genuine um, uh, description of what the plans were at the time. But uh, the initial plan was not to uh, admit all of the former Warsaw Pact countries into NATO, but instead to create a separate organization uh, called Partnership for Peace. And Yeltsin was a fan of that idea, and that seemed to be an admirable, uh, kind of an amicable resolution for the uh, kind of how to handle the post-Cold War European security arrangements. Now, uh, Clinton, uh, a staunch supporter of Yeltsin, waited until Yeltsin's re-election in 1996. So he did not make this move of NATO inspection until he knew that Yeltsin was guaranteed the second term. But after Yeltsin's re-election, uh, the Clinton administration pushed for the expansion of NATO. And that episode in uh, the Russian interpretation of history is viewed as the grand offense, the grand tre treason, if, if you will. Uh, and um, we see that after 2004, Vladimir Putin starts to bring up those events. And then even, even he goes back even earlier to the conversations between Gorbachev and uh, Baker in 1990 when the Soviet Union was disintegrating and uh, when they were discussing the reunification of Germany. And so uh, we can trace that after 2004 and um, uh, by 2014, this narrative builds up where Ukraine is no longer viewed as a friendly neighbor, but instead a puppet of the West. And uh, any uh, popular um, uh, any free protests uh, in Ukraine or any um, elections of uh, non-pro-Russia leaders are viewed as not free expression, but instead as uh, some sort of uh, malicious plan by the United States. Uh, and so uh, what happened in 2014 that kind of um, led to the annexation of Crimea uh, was the ousting of the pro-Russia uh, uh, president, who was a corrupt leader, and he, um, he fled the country. Uh, the, the way this is being portrayed in Russia is that uh, he was ousted uh, uh, by uh, 
Western countries, uh, which is ridiculous. If you actually follow the events, you, you could really see that the Western allies were just scrambling. Nobody could really, it was a chaotic situation. And amidst all of that chaos, the president fled the country. Uh, and of course, in, in, in Putin's interpretation of, the, of those events, uh, things are uh, very well planned and uh, strategically orchestrated. <laughs> and then um, he makes the move to annex uh, Crimea, the Crimean Peninsula in 2014. Um, I interpret those events as mainly his fear that the pro-Western government, the inter interim government that came to power after the um, ousting of um, pro-Russia president was mo mainly motivated by the fact that he was afraid that the new pro-Western government would initiate the renegotiations of the long-term lease for the Black Sea military base that Russia has on that peninsula. So that to me seems like the clear immediate concern that Russia had, and it resulted that concern by annexing that territory. Mm. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to pick up with Crimea. Any lessons uh, to be learned there and, and you know, applied to the current situation? Uh, we're talking about the situation in Ukraine, uh, Russian troops uh, on the border, and uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, you know, the, the, we're wondering if uh, will he invade, will he not? Um, but, uh, and of course, the West is threatening sanctions if he does. Um and we've kind of seen this movie before, right, uh, as well. Uh, so serious situation there, and we're uh, talking about it with Anna Pechenkina, who is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Utah State University. More following this. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners like you and utahhumanities.org, improving communities through active engagement with the humanities. Support also comes from Utah State Theater, presenting a public panel discussion on women's historical roles in theater and literature on opening night of the Moors by Jen Silverman. Friday, February 11th at 6.45 p.m. at Logan's Downtown Lyric Theater. Details at theater.usu.edu. It's time for Utah Public Radio's annual Art Mug Contest, and we're asking for your entries now through February 18th. You can use any artistic medium for your design. Just show us what you love about UPR, our programming, or our station's home here in Utah. You'll all get to vote on your favorite design, and the winner will be printed on this year's mug, available during our spring member drive. For more details, go to upr.org, and to submit, just send your designs to me, katie.swain at usu.edu, by February 18th. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have with us uh, USU Assistant Professor of Political Science, Anna Pechenkina. Uh, she studies international and civil conflict <coughs> and conflict resolution. Uh, also positioning her in this discussion, she is uh, ethnic Russian, uh, grew up in eastern Ukraine. Um, before we get to, I, I mentioned we talk about Crimea, lessons from Crimea. First of all, I want to uh, talk about internal politics in Ukraine. Um, what are what are the con, what are the concerns? Um, do, do do folks does the majority in Ukraine want to be Western aligned? Uh, are there economic concerns, and do they feel like they can they can get their economic needs met uh, through the West, or some of them say, "Hey, we could align with Russia and, and be better off economically." Yeah, thanks to Vladimir Putin's uh, foreign policy. 
Uh, Ukraine uh, has evolved from being a country torn between two worlds in 2014. So in 2014, before the annexation of Crimea, Ukraine was um, uh, almost evenly split between a kind of uh, not favoring um, um, admission to NATO and being in favor of that, where even the majority of Ukrainians were opposed to NATO. Um, but I think more than half were um, supportive of uh, the EU membership. Uh, now, however, after uh, the annexation of Crimea, after the war in, in the Donbas region, uh, overwhelming majority of Ukrainians support um, uh, Ukraine's uh, admission to NATO. So that's the uh, tangible uh, effect of uh, what Vladimir Putin has done in Ukraine. Oh, interesting, interesting. Uh, probably unintended, I would guess. But, um, <laughs> we, we read you would think. <laughs> Mr. Putin's mind. Um, so um, a majority uh, want to be Western aligned. Um, is, is there any sentiment in Eastern um, Ukraine for joining Russia, for a couple of those provinces to go to, to, go to Russia? Is... I think there was a genuine... Um, um, bef- so immediately after the annexation of Crimea, when um, uh, citizens of uh, Eastern Ukraine saw that Crimea was not left in the um, uh, kind of uh, no man's land, the unrecognized territory, but it was fully admitted into the Russian Federation, tons of investment followed. And uh, since Russia is a wealthier country, it's about uh, uh, the um, in, in terms of uh, our purchasing power parity per capita, it's about three times as wealthy as, as Ukraine. So the living standards did rise in, in Crimea. That is true. So I think those initial um, kind of observing that initial set of moves by Russia made some, not all, but I think a minority of Eastern Ukrainians perhaps considering uh, that, you know, uh, kind of joining Russia perhaps would be uh, a a pathway to economic development for them because Ukraine has truly struggled. Ukraine is one of the very few countries of the former Soviet bloc that um, um, kind of is more or less at the same per capita income as it was in 1990. However, after seeing the war in the Donbas, and seeing how the territories, the DNR and LNR, these unrecognized territories, how they've been treated and the standards of living plummeted there, and Russia is simply using them as leverage, as painful leverage against Ukraine, um, that all of those, um, if anyone had any illusions about that, all of that is gone. And um, I, I think there is close to zero percent support for any sort of uh, joining Russia in Eastern Ukraine today. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we can all agree that um, a Western military response to an invasion of Ukraine is, I don't know what you'd put the probability of, is pretty close to zero, right? Wouldn't you say? Uh, yeah, I think zero is exactly right. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I think everyone has been very clear that uh, even though uh, the Western uh, states are highly concerned about the situation, uh, the, there is a clear line of demarcation between NATO members and non-NATO members, and nobody is sending troops to defend non-NATO members, and Ukraine is not inside NATO. Yeah. Um, 
sanctions are being threatened. Uh, how effective can sanctions be? Uh, do you, how big a threat do you think Putin sees that? Yeah, I think sanctions are um, uh, the sanctions that uh, have been threatened. They seem to be, uh, um, you know, significant. Uh, I can. Uh, it's it's quite clear that they would hurt Russian economy. I think one of uh, another. Uh, so the, the um, one of one of the ways to interpret what we're seeing today, this mobilization and uh, general alarm uh, with moving troops uh, uh, from, from the far east of Russia to Belarus, kind of. Uh, what is all this um, escalation about? One ways, one of the ways to interpret that would be to say that uh, the Kremlin is trying to figure out what will be the specific tangible things that the West w- will respond with. And so the sanctions that have been threatened uh, do seem significant. Now, um, if indeed Putin has conceived that the only way for him to have a veto of over Ukraine's foreign policy is by military means. I guess the the fear of sanctions may not be sufficient to overcome that because Russia has a sufficient stabilization fund. So supposedly it can uh, weather uh, even significant sanctions. But again, in the long run, it does seem like that would be um, a significant concern. In addition, all of this mobilization has tanked uh, the ruble, and uh, the kind of every time the Russian uh, side is making statements that sound like really aggressive threats, you can see that the stock market is plummeting. And I think that's a, a, a very useful reminder that uh, the war will be costly for Russia. What would the likely effects be of a Russian invasion of eastern Ukraine? What, you know, for Russia, maybe start there, maybe medium and then long term. Yeah, I think it's very difficult to repeat the success of Crimea. I think a lot of observers say that, well, look at how good the Crimean annexation went for Putin. His uh, approval rating was the highest he had ever achieved. He had an approval north of 80 uh, percent. And, and that approval lasted a couple of years and kind of that the truly the annexation of Crimea truly uh, did unify, kind of provided that additional um, ideological boost to his um, United uh, Russia party, uh, the hegemonic party in, in Russia. Um, that to me seems uh, like wishful thinking, mainly because Crimea was a unique case because the local population of Crimea, majority of it, even if the referendum in Crimea was legitimate and, and you know, um, kind of w- conducted according to all the legal requirements with observers, um, I think indeed the, the majority of the population would have voted to join Russia. That is not the case in eastern Ukraine anymore. So uh, you will not be uh, occupying a country. Uh, so, so any sort of military move inside Ukraine would spark an insurgency, right? I cannot see the appetite inside Russia for a long-term occupation of a neighboring country with whom they share a long history. And uh, I I just don't see how that type of military intervention could be sold in any way as defensive, you know, as opposed to offensive. 
So uh, it's difficult for me to imagine even perhaps there could be a short-term rally effect in support of the executive, but in the long run, um, none of these scenarios really answer the question, how can Russia truly achieve its political goals by military means? But again, I was wrong in 2014. Yeah. I never thought that Russia would sponsor the war in the Donbas, and yet it did. Right, right. Um, you uh, imagine, you know, if you're in Ukraine, um, maybe just resign that, you know, the, the huge neighbor to the east, uh, you know, you're always going to have troubles, always going to be uneasy. Is that is any hope that uh, there'll be lasting peace, a, a full resolution? Yeah, it's, uh, oh, you know, it's one of those things that Ukraine just got really unlucky with its neighbor to the east, and it has to acknowledge this uh, sad reality, right? Uh, it's, um, for the time being, um, I think it's quite clear that nobody in perhaps some of the countries but none of the countries that are that we would describe as major players inside NATO would ever vote to accept Ukraine into NATO. Uh, Ukraine is seeking the EU membership but it is light years away from being ready to uh, economically um, and and uh, all the, all the um, governments that um, that have presided in Ukraine, they have all resisted uh, implementing the reforms necessary for EU membership. So it seems that the facts are such that Ukraine is very far away from any sort of true membership in Western structures of NATO and the EU. And um, kind of a reasonable listener could ask, so why, why not just say, guys, we're not joining NATO, we're not going to join NATO. In fact, why is it that Ukraine changed its own constitution in February of 2019 and added an amendment that its uh, course, its, its foreign policy course is to eventually join the NATO and the EU? Why make things worse right, mm -hmm. with, with, with its powerful neighbor? The, the simple answer is domestic politics. Yes, uh, uh, this is the um, the upside and the downside of having uh, a um, a free de small d democratic process is that politicians oftentimes become the hostages of public opinion. Mm -hmm. So tell me about that public opinion. Uh, apparently, public opinion, at least the majority, favors um, you know Western alignment, uh, moving toward perhaps NATO. Yes, uh, that has been uh, the clear trend uh, inside Ukraine. So uh, um, before 2014, before the annexation of Crimea, Ukraine used to be the country torn between two worlds, uh, where uh, most of the presidents elected in Ukraine would have to navigate the language issue, the issue of the national language, or the, the kind of the status of the Russian language that used to be a highly politicized issue. And um, you, if you look at all the electoral maps of presidential elections before the, uh, before the annexation of Crimea, uh, you can almost see a clear split between the Ukraine, um, uh, the, the Western Ukraine, right of the Dnieper River, and the Eastern Ukraine, left of the Dnieper River. Now, after uh, uh, Putin's uh, 
annexation of Crimea and the war in Donbass, uh, Ukraine held two presidential elections. And in both of those, you no longer see that clear divide between, between the West and the East. So inside Ukraine, some of the analysts like to joke that one day in the future, when all of this is over, we'll, uh, we'll have uh, a statue, to, we'll install a statue to Putin <laughs> as the grand unifier of the Ukrainian people. <laughs> Uh, ironic, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, tell me about language and uh, and culture. Uh, what would you want us to know about about you know the languages spoken and and uh, and and culture, um, especially shared culture in in Ukraine? Uh, I guess first of all, how many Russians? How many ethnic Russians are there? Is it a significant part of the population? So uh, ethnic. Uh, the, the group that is ethnic Russians is distinct from Russian native speakers ah. because there are some uh, ethnic Ukrainians for whom the Russian language is their native language, mm -hmm. is their first language. So the question of language uh, has, has been highly politicized in Ukraine since its independence in 1991. Uh, an interesting fact is that uh, in, in the last Soviet census uh, showed that Ukraine had above 20% of uh, ethnic Russian population. But then the, the first census of independent Ukraine showed only 17% uh, of uh, ethnic Russian population. But the migration data, kind of the, if you look at the, how many people left Ukraine, uh, cannot account for that difference. So what that tells us is that the, the change of the political context has, uh, uh, made some of the uh, some of the people to reconsider what is their primary ethnic identity. Uh, what we see in Ukraine is a sizable, what we call a sizable ethnic minority, uh, ethnic Russians, but um, the political weight of that group is probably uh, higher than its kind of 17% of the population, mainly because about half of Ukraine um, uses Russian as its native language. And then um, it, ethnicity is not what's politicized in Ukraine. It's the language that's politicized in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the, the language you speak uh, carries political implications then? Yeah, um, I'm... I'm um, uh, taking my time thinking how to answer this question uh, because uh, this is one of the situations where politicians have found a cleavage and made it worse. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is uh, one of those things where uh, de facto, um, especially in eastern Ukraine, uh, you know, there are, uh, all, there are plenty of Russian language schools. There are plenty of Russian language theaters. Uh, the uh, Russian-speaking TV channels are um, are everywhere. All kind of so access to uh, news content and cultural content and education, or at least uh, K through 12 education in the Russian language, none of that is limited. Now, uh, the reason why uh, the language issue has become politicized is that immediately after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, there was a strong movement in Ukraine 
to kind of use the Ukrainian language as the um, vehicle for state building. And it really struggled um, until 2014. Mm. Now, thanks to Putin, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that uh, uh, kind of the use of Ukrainian language as a conscious way of signaling your um, kind of patriotic affiliation with the uh, with Ukrainian nation has become quite commonplace. I myself have friends who are like me, grew up as Russian speakers, but they currently choose to use Ukrainian first when they are at the store or in a theater. Uh, just to signal that we are a united country. Mm. Yeah. So, so that's the kind of. I would like to emphasize that um, the the claims of discrimination of Russian speakers in Ukraine are vastly exaggerated inside Russia. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, let's take another break. Uh, we'll come back with uh, much more on this. So we're talking about the situation in uh, in Ukraine. And we're talking with Anna Pechenkina, who's Assistant Professor of Political Science at Utah State University. By the way, if you have a question or comment, you can get that to us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. More following this. Support for 2022 legislative coverage on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and the USU Institute for Disability Research, Policy, and Practice working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, and education. Information at idrpp.usu.edu. Support also comes from the Utah Women and Leadership Project at Utah State University, creators of the Utah Women and Leadership podcast series. Information and episodes are available at utwomen.org. Hi, I'm Natalie Gochner. I represent the Political Center. Join us for both sides of the aisle from KCPW. A weekly debate over politics, policy, and current issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices representing the right, the center, and the left. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing residents of this state while proving that Republicans and Democrats can sit in a small room and have a meaningful conversation. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 here on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about Ukraine, the situation we're all aware of uh, happening right now. Um, and we're talking with Anna Pechenkina, who's Assistant Professor of Political Science at Utah State University. Her research uh, concerns international and civil conflict and conflict resolution. Um, you're welcome to get a, a quick question or comment to us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. We have about uh, 10 minutes left in the, in the program. Um First in this segment, Professor Petrinkina, I'm wondering, um, I guess, two questions uh, similar to each other. First, what would Ukraine most want from the West in this particular crisis? What, what would be most effective, do you think, in, in response from the West? Yeah, I know why you're asking this, because I, I, I was quite surprised to see the reports of um, President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine criticizing the U.S. President Joe Biden uh, for creating, I think he used the word hysteria around the situation and kind of making the situation worse. Um, uh, the power difference between Ukraine and and the U.S. is just, uh, and, and kind of the, the extent to which Ukraine is dependent on, say, like IMF loans and, and the assistance of the Western allies um, just makes that comment quite stark. Um, I think everyone in Ukraine appreciates the um, uh, rhetorical support. 
At the same time, uh, there uh, there is a um, true sense that uh, these are um, kind of the, the rhetoric is nice, but we know that Ukrainians know that they're on their own. Um, I do want to emphasize that this time we are seeing and kind of the amount of attention that, that the current escalation has received has allowed the NATO states to send much more heavy equipment than I had expected. Mm. That has been uh, an interesting development. I think it is a positive development because it's also, in addition to sanctions that you've mentioned earlier, it's also signaling uh, to Kremlin that the invasion will be costly. Of course, if Russia, Russia has the military means to occupy Ukraine, but the cost at which that would come does matter. And hopefully it does have some secondary deterrent effects. So uh, providing uh, uh, defensive equipment, um, supporting Ukraine, these are nice moves. What do Ukrainians want? I think they would like to be treated like Poland, but we all know that it's impossible. What, I'm, what I mean is that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, after the collapse of the Warsaw Pact, Ukraine and Poland started out with the same uh, per capita income. And the countries are very similar in terms of the size and the population and the structure of the economy. Yet today, Poland is at least three times wealthier than Ukraine. And it's all about, and it's all because of uh, uh, integration with the West. I think uh, Ukrainians um, would like that fate for themselves, but geography cannot be um, mm -hmm. wrestled with. So given that reality, what would Ukrainians most want long-term from the West? It's hard for me to say. I think they would... I think I can tell you what they most want from the East, and that's the change of government in Russia. I think so many, especially today, uh, we can see that um, uh, kind of the the struggle inside Kremlin and the different messaging that the foreign minister is saying that there are kernels of rationality in the Western response, while Putin is saying that our demands have been ignored. That that. To me, that signals that there is even disarray on the Russian side. That, to me, the signals that the environment of Putin is saying, hey, there is a way to declare victory here and go home. Let's do just that. Mm -hmm. And there is certain resistance. And I'm curious to see more from the foreign ministry, which is supposed to issue a written response. To go back to what you said about the West, I think... Ukrainians would like, um, and as I and as I described, the kind of the consolidated public support for Western integration today, thanks to Putin. Ironically, um, I think that's that's the course uh, that uh, Ukraine has chosen and would like to pursue. But I think the true the reality is that it's unlikely that we will see in the near decades even that Ukraine will be admitted to these um, to these institutions, perhaps barring uh, some severe moves by Russia. But again, the cost of these moves, uh, I think, or I hope, makes them unlikely. Hmm. So have about five minutes left. I want to um, maybe have you apply just a little bit of, of your research. You, you, know, you, you research conflict resolution. Uh, is there a principle or two that you you study that uh, could be applied here, and how how does this get resolved? Yeah, Ukraine is a uh, uh, the the war in the Donbas is uh, what we call a kind of a, um, 
classical commitment problem uh, for the the rebels in that uh, for these non-state actor governments in those territories, where they are afraid to disarm because they cannot trust they cannot trust the promises of the Ukrainian government to grant them amnesty because they know once they disarm they will give up their greatest leverage the military coercion and it will be only reasonable only um, sensible for the Ukrainian government to renege on the promises of amnesty because n- most of the time especially in um, the situations where governments are democratically elected, uh, like is the case in Ukraine, amnesty to the rebels is highly, highly unpopular. And it, it's intuitive. So uh, that's why it's it's a kind of, it looks like a stalemated situation that, that cannot be resolved. What we do know from other conflicts is that one way to resolve it is to find a third party that could be trusted by both sides. So in this uh, case, it could be um, a uh, party, uh, let's say, outside of the European continent, perhaps, but certainly not the United States, uh, that if, if they could send troops and both sides would agree to those observers to monitor the implementation of uh, the ceasefire agreement, that could help. Now, the big problem here is Russia. As long as Putin is in Kremlin, I cannot foresee Russia agreeing to such terms. But that would be the way to move forward here. Mm-hmm. What do you think is most likely going to happen? I think Putin will continue to use the Donbas um, territories as leverage against Ukraine. We've seen this in Transnistria and Moldova. We've seen this in Abkhazia and South Ossetia in Georgia. So uh, one of the... Uh, there are multiple reasons for that. One is that you have de facto control over foreign policy of these countries. Uh, you are uh, on at least um, on. I'm not saying that the NATO countries want Moldova, uh, Ukraine, and Georgia uh, in, inside NATO. I think most of these uh, countries, uh, most of the leaders of these countries, if you give them truth serum, they would say. No way. We're not going to war, right? Article 5 would have to apply. We do not want to fight with Russia over these countries. But uh, having these territories, having these territorial disputes gives the NATO countries a, um, a, a formal excuse not to grant admission because no country that has a territorial dispute can be a NATO member. You have to resolve all of your territorial disputes before becoming a NATO member. So, um, yes, control over uh, the domestic and foreign policy in these countries and um, kind of de facto vetoing any potential NATO membership. uh, These are the the objectives of creating these uh, separatist enclaves. Mm. We're just about out of time. This must be very interesting to talk about with your students. You're right in the wheelhouse of, of what you study. This must be very interesting discussions. Yes, I, I've, uh, I've um, tremendously enjoyed teaching at Utah State, and uh, some of the class uh, I teach uh, in this semester, I teach classes on international security and ethnic conflict, and so that allows me to dissect the situation in Ukraine. Since students are following the news, they're quite interested in what's happening from two different levels. Uh, in the international security class, we think about the uh, um, long-term shifts in power uh, in in favor of different actors, and how the perception by Russian elites that the 
um, the status quo is uh, gradually becoming less favorable to them, what that uh, what types of incentives that creates for their foreign policy choices. So that's kind of the international take. And then in my ethnic conflict course, uh, um, we, we talk about um, how politics activates and deactivates identities. Mm -hmm. And I think Ukraine is a really nice illustration for that, uh, where, I've, as I've mentioned uh, today, uh, where the um, switching of public opinion has really happened in eastern Ukraine. So uh, here you have the population that used to be incredibly friendly to Russia, very pro-Russian, and yet more and more common we see these individuals for whom Ukrainian is a second language. They've learned it in school. They choose to use it as an act of uh, kind of as a political statement. Very interesting. Uh, well, we uh, appreciate you coming in to talk about this uh, This rip from the headlines uh, topic. Um, we'll all hope for a, a good resolution here. Uh, we've been talking with Anna Pechenkina, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Utah State University. Thank you. My pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. The search for more affordable, alternative energy sources is nothing new. This week, learn how a businessman in the late 1800s electrified rural Utah using a state-of-the-art hydroelectric system. First this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. We take it for granted now, but electricity was a hot commodity in the late 19th century. Utah's rural towns were growing quickly and required affordable, dependable energy. Eager to meet the growing demands, power companies competed for business with lower prices and new technologies. Seeing an opportunity for profit, entrepreneur Lucian Nunn decided to harness local water sources to provide electricity to many rural Utahns. Nunn started the Telluride Power Company in Colorado before deciding to move his business to nearby Utah where interest in hydroelectricity was emerging. Utahns were already familiar with hydropower in the form of windmills, age-old technology that uses the motion of flowing water to turn a large wheel or power basic machinery. Nunn's technology, however, diverted water from a stream and directed the flow through a series of flumes that allowed water pressure to build up. As the pressurized water forced its way from the pipe, it turned turbines inside a powerhouse, creating electricity. In 1897, Nunn built his first hydroelectric power plant along the Provo River. Featuring the first high-voltage, long-distance, alternating power transmission system of its kind, the demand for power from Nunn's station quickly outpaced the size of the operation. Rather than expand, Nunn built another power plant nearby. The new Olmsted power plant boasted a laboratory, offices, and a school for electrical engineering students. The complex system made lives for many Utahns significantly more convenient, and the success encouraged Nunn to build more plants throughout the state. The results of his work were revolutionary both in terms of electrifying the rural West and educating a class of emerging engineers. The popularity of hydropower declined in the second half of the 20th century, due in part to the development of other forms of electric power generation. 
The Olmsted plant saw many transitions over the years, but since 1987, its primary function was supplying culinary water for Salt Lake and Utah counties. Decommissioned in 2015, the site is set to start a second life as a museum, celebrating the legacy of Lucian Nunn's entrepreneurial spirit and dedication to hydroelectric power. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. On this week's Eating the Past, I welcome Silvana Martini, Professor of Biochemistry and Faculty Director of the Aggie Chocolate Factory. We explore the history of cacao beans, the science of turning cacao beans into chocolate, and the chemical link between chocolate and notions of romance as we approach Valentine's Day. Join us Sunday at noon for Eating the Past, right before the Splendid Table on your UPR station. Hey, it's Francis Lamb, host of The Splendid Table. This week, it's all about winter vegetables. Yes, I said that with excitement because winter vegetables are exciting. We've got cookbook author and salad savant Hetty McKinnon and one of the most creative vegetable cooks in New York, Chef Amanda Cohen. Coming up on The Splendid Table. Sundays at noon on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org. It's 10 o'clock.